All right, y'all, welcome to the Scott Horton Show. I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of Antiwar.com, author of the book Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and the brand new Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And I've recorded more than 5,500 interviews since 2003, almost all on foreign policy and all available for you at scotthorton.org. You can sign up for the podcast feed there. And the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash Scott Horton Show. You guys on the line, I've got David Stockman. And of course, you know, he was a congressman and was famously Ronald Reagan's budget director back in the 1980s. Quit over the cost of militarism, by the way, and was a successful uh, Wall Street guy for a long time. And now he gives financial advice. If you call it that, maybe it's just a lot of ranting and raving <laughs> at David Stockman's ContraCorner.com. And by the way, even though mostly he's an economics guy, he's as good of an anti-war guy as you could find. See, for example, his archives about Obama's dirty wars in Syria and Ukraine and all of his great coverage debunking Russiagate, every single aspect but anyway, we're here to talk about uh, the economy today. Welcome back to the show. How are you doing, David? Great to be with you, Scott. And uh, I guess ranting and raving might be the word, but uh, when you consider what's happening in the world today, I think uh, you might conclude that it does deserve some ranting and raving because, you know, we're so far off the deep end in terms of fiscal policy, money printing at the Fed, uh, an economy that uh, I think is in pretty dire shape. Uh, the impact that this, uh, you know, proxy war against Russia and the Ukraine is having on the entire global economy and especially the commodity markets. When you put all that together, uh, you know, we've got a confluence of negative economic factors that I haven't seen for a long time. And I've been watching uh, this uh, since the late 1960s. Yeah. All right. So if I can start at something like a beginning here, um, I know that you are at least uh, associated somewhat with the Austrian school um, and and that sort of complete laissez-faire take on uh, free market economics. And if I understand this kind of thing right, uh, essentially the idea is that pretty much any government intervention in the economy is going to cause some kind of distortion that's going to lead to some further consequences later. Even if you say, hey, the price is worth it because of whatever reason or whatever that essentially um, there's always going to be this correction. It's always going to cause some distortion. And I bring that up first here because I think that actually is a pretty unusual way of looking at things, right? And most people look at things through a political lens first and it's been since FDR really right that the financial capital of America was moved from New York to D.C. And economic decisions are made by the political economy, really, in D.C. Yeah. And, and elections are really referendums on the president's performance when it comes to how the economy is doing. And this kind of thing, that's sort of how everybody looks at it. So, But then from this more uh, Austrian laissez-faire take... Looking back at the last couple of years, I guess all you see is just hammer blows from all different directions against the natural order of pricing structures and economic flows and this and that. When I read your articles, that's essentially what you're complaining about, is that everything is all out of whack compared to where it would have been otherwise, which would have been better. Is that about right? Yeah, I think that's right. And what it says is that you need to occasionally, anyway, go back to first principles, back to square one, um, and understand that essentially prosperity economically and liberty, uh, you know, thrive on the free market and in a free society, and they become circumscribed and um, diluted, if not endangered, when the state uh, intervenes and grows and mushrooms and envelops uh, the private uh, economy. Now, that doesn't mean you have to be a raving absolutist about, you know, uh, state intervention ever at any time. 
but it's a good benchmark or standard to start with. And when we start with that standard and look what's been happening, you know, for a long time, for decades, as you say, going back to the New Deal, but especially in the last couple of decades, you can understand why uh, prosperity is, uh, you know, uh, disappearing, why personal liberty got so imperiled uh, during the COVID hysteria that people were almost locked in their homes by orders of the state, and that all of this, uh, you know, is compounding when you add things like the Green New Deal and the fanaticism about uh, the climate crisis. I mean, if you look at the real science as opposed to the political propaganda, uh, there is no climate crisis. There is climate change. It's been going on for four and a half billion years, but it's not something that requires massive, you know, increase in state intervention in the form of all of these anti-fossil fuel policies <clears throat> in order uh, to protect the future of the planet. The planet will take care of itself. But the policies will dramatically uh, uh, impair, you know, uh, the private economy and uh, capitalist prosperity um, as a result of uh, these uh, anti-fossil fuel uh, policies on top of all the other interventions we're doing. So now we have massive federal borrowing and deficits. We have a central bank that's been totally out of control for decades, uh, printing money at a, a reckless, uh, fantastic rate. Uh, we have tremendous regulatory intervention, uh, perhaps uh, symbolized recently by the COVID uh, lockdowns and the uh, anti-fossil fuel climate policies. But you put all these things together and you've got a pretty uh, potent brew of uh, damaging intervention. Uh, and you've reached the point where the state is becoming all powerful and all enveloping and all dominating. And uh, there's a tremendous cost, obviously, that comes with that. Yeah. All right. Now, I know this is a lot, but I know you can handle it. Can you sketch for us real quick here the typical boom-bust cycle? Alan Greenspan prints some money. We get some bubbles. We have a crash. We do it again. We have a housing crash instead of dot-coms, this and that, something like that. If, if 99 yeah. and 08 are sort of typical. But then tell me how different it is that you had the recession this time wasn't really because – or the last time, sorry, most recently, was not because of raising interest rates. It was because of this forced lockdown was essentially this massive yeah. deflationary program that smashed a lot of bubbles and crashed a lot of prices uh, at, the, at the start of the lockdowns anyway. But then they embarked on this massive monetary expansion to sort of fill in the black hole that they had caused there, sort of like 2009 – on meth kind of thing, if I understand it right. But so can you just like if you if you were to sketch sort of how the typical business cycle works and compare it to the yeah. 2020 crash and now the boom that's now crashing the 22 crash. Like this is the fastest business cycle we've seen yeah. in a very long time. Right. Right. It's, and right. it's all so yeah. artificially induced. Right. Yeah. yeah, you're covering a lot of important territory there, but I think you have to look at it in three stages. First, it's what I call your grandfather's recession. That's what I grew up with in the 60s and 70s. You know, we had one in 1970. We had another bad one in 74, 75. There were actually two of them in the early 80s when Volcker was desperately attempting to rein in the double-digit inflation that, you know, came out of the... Uh, Jimmy Carter uh, era of the 1970s. But the point is, those were kind of classic Keynesian style recessions where uh, excessive um, Fed um, stimulus and credit expansion caused uh, too much, uh, you know, borrowing and lending and spending in the private economy. The Fed finally reached the point where it had to rein in um, its uh, policies by drastically raising interest rates uh, 
and reducing its injection of credit into the economy. And you got uh, recessions that were led by housing and uh, capital uh, goods uh, spending and eventually uh, consumer spending as well. Now that that was, uh, let's call it phase one. In phase two, after Greenspan in the mid 90s, we got into financial bubbles. In other words, the, the economy globalized so much that the uh, Fed, Fed Reserve credit expansion didn't just create a boom in the domestic economy or in housing, but it actually exported uh, the you know implicit uh, inflation uh, to the entire world economy, and uh, it temporarily became disguised by the fact that uh, we imported back um, massive uh, amounts of cheap goods from China and Vietnam and Mexico and so forth. So the cycle changed, and what what came out of it was a massive inflation of financial assets because the goods and services inflation was being uh, suppressed and diverted into global trade. But uh, those uh, financial bubbles, first the dot-com in 2000, and then you know the housing finance bubble, it wasn't so much we overbuilt housing, it's that we overvalued it from you know, all the subprime uh, mortgages and the rest of it. But that was 2008. Uh, so we got two pretty, uh, one moderate recession and one pretty severe one uh, at the beginning of this uh, uh, century that were driven by fin collapsing financial bubbles that eventually spilled over in the real economy and you went back through the ringer again. Now, phase three happened in 2000, uh, basically, when Washington panicked, and I would I, I insist on blaming Trump for this, he uh, he had the uh, uh, you know the control dial, so to speak, and if he had stood up to Fauci and the rest of these uh, you know scientific fakers, we never would have gone into two weeks uh, you know uh, to uh, flatten the curve. You know, but he, he um, didn't have enough understanding of what constitutional government is about, what liberty requires, and what the scientific facts actually were, which were known even then. There were a lot of experts who were warning against this. We dove into these lockdowns sweeping across the board, nothing like we'd ever seen in peacetime. And by the second quarter, you had a collapse of economic activity that was really startling, and we're still digging out from under. But there are two numbers that I think people ought to keep in mind. One is that at an annualized rate, the GDP in uh, second quarter of 2020 uh, shrank by 30%. I mean, just an astounding number. Normally, uh, in a reset, at bottom of the recession quarter, you might get a shrinkage of 3% or 4% or 5%, but not 30. That tells you how severe and how shocking and sudden this was. Another statistic that I use is if you look at the, uh, and this is something I, I use a lot when I analyze uh, the labor market, which, you know, I think the Fed and Wall Street are totally wrong about. It's not that strong at all. But I look at hours worked, not at headcounts, but at hours worked, and the BLS actually does provide indexes by industry for hours worked. And when you look at the leisure and hospitality sector, which is was ground zero of the lockdowns, restaurants, bars, um, entertainment venues, movies, uh, sports arenas, et cetera. The number of hours worked in April 19, uh, 2020 collapsed by 56%. Just startling. That was like 40 or 50 years worth of employment growth 
in uh, the leisure and hospitality domestic you know, services sector uh, disappeared on a dime suddenly, almost without warning, in April 2020. And that's what triggered the next round of recession. But here's the thing to, to circle back to your question, and that is this was clearly a supply-side contraction, utterly different, the opposite of the old phase one kind of Keynesian uh, recession. And the answer to it was for the what I call the virus patrol, uh, that is uh, the health uh, authorities uh, that were unleashed by uh, Fauci and the rest of them, uh, to get their foot off the neck of the economy, let uh, the economy reopen, let restaurants and bars and gyms and movie houses and so forth reopen, focus uh, the policy on the vulnerable elderly and uh, people uh, that had, uh, you know, other underlying issues and let uh, the economy and society go back to work. If you had done that, there would there was no need for anything else. There wasn't need for the Fed to take its balance sheet from about uh, $4 trillion in March when they declared the uh, original lockdown uh, to nine trillion over the next uh, couple of years, there was no need for the three different rounds of stimulus programs, two under Trump, one under Biden, they're equally responsible, that added up to six trillion of extraordinary spending that has now just been added to uh, the public debt. There wasn't need for any of that demand side stimulus, either fiscal or monetary, because the problem was on the supply side. The problem was orders of the state that prevented commerce from happening, prevented people from working and getting a paycheck, prevented uh, you know, existing businesses that had made heavy investments uh, from uh, providing services uh, to their customer base and public. So uh, we ended up now. Uh, with uh, a experiment, I would say, in just crazy out of this world fiscal and monetary stimulus that ended up distorting and contorting and twisting the economy in ways that, you know, it would have been hard to imagine even five years ago. We had, first of all, when the lockdowns occurred and nobody could go to the malls or the restaurants or the bars or the gyms, uh, they stayed at home and ordered stuff from Amazon. And the next thing you knew, there was a massive increase in spending on merchandise goods. It uh, drained the uh, inventories out of the supply pipeline, both uh, warehouses here and the uh, supply pipelines going back to China and other places abroad. And the next thing we knew, we had tremendous shortages of everything because all that stimmy money that wasn't needed and all the money that wasn't being spent on restaurants and other services uh, got sent to Amazon uh, for goods. Uh, you know, people bought three or four years worth of goods in three or four months. And that has created lasting distortions in the economy. And we could go into all those. But it just shows you, and I think I'll stop with that, that uh, when the state gets out of control because it's defined problems or threats that require, you know, big time intervention, you end up uh, with so much uh, dislocation, dislocation and uh, distortion in the private economy that then you get another whole round of problems that they try to fix with even uh, more uh, intervention. It's uh, kind of a self-fueling uh, 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 process. So that's the kind of where we are now. Um, if they would uh, you know, recognize that we have not gone through a conventional cycle, 
that is not your grandfather's uh, boom and bust cycle of the 70s, 80s, and even 90s, and not the financial bubble type cycle of 2002-08, but a uh, you know totally unusual and unprecedented supply side contraction ordered by government. We could probably dig our way out of this problem, but uh, obviously that isn't what's uh, on Washington's mind. That isn't what what's on the Fed's mind. Uh, even now, as it recognizes that it's way behind the curve and has been forced into monetary restraint, even though just months ago, uh, interest rates were zero and it was buying you know, $120 billion a month. Uh, worth of government securities. So, you know, we're, we're in a pretty uh, bad state of uh, affairs. Yeah. So I'll tell you, a few weeks ago, I was invited to talk about some of this boom bust nonsense on the Kennedy show on Fox. And they sent me this article from Bloomberg News to prepare one of the things we we're going to be discussing, you know. And in that yeah. article, they say, yeah, see, what we're trying to do is we're really trying to restrain the labor market because it's too, too strong and and strong labor markets cause inflation. And yeah. so therefore, what we want to do is raise interest rates enough where we think if we can cause uh, somewhere between 3.5 to 3.7 million people to lose their jobs, right. that would be really great progress. That's what we're trying yeah. to do because the economy is too hot and too good. Right. And so we're trying yeah. to cool it off by raising these interest rates high um, because those hourly workers are the cause of all our rising prices. And we yeah. have to screw them good. Yeah, well, you know, that's what's uh, called the Phillips curve, the so-called trade-off between inflation and employment. And it's a lot of damn nonsense. I mean, it is not uh, historically valid and uh, it's not uh, logically uh, correct. Uh, people working produce output. More output helps uh, to reduce inflationary pressures not uh you know exacerbate them so uh the the whole idea that the fed has needs to make four million people or seven million or three and a half million people unemployed and that's going to solve the inflation problem uh, i think uh, is upside down the inflation problem we have today is because the fed created way too much uh financial credit over years, but especially after, you know, as we've been talking about March 2020. And what they need to do is get interest rates back to some kind of historical normalcy that says after inflation, which eventually will come down, you still have a positive two, three, four percent return to investors. Now, the problem right now and the reason that the Fed should be raising interest rates and quite dramatically, in my view, is not so we can make 4 million people unemployed. That could be a corollary effect, but that's not the reason. The reason is you're never going to control inflation if you have 7 to 8% year-over-year -year inflation, which we have even despite all the uh, hoopla yesterday about inflation, CPI being down to 7.7%. Um, that uh, when you have inflation running, let's just say at 7%, and you have uh, the federal funds rate at just under 4%, then you can do the math. That means that the real rate, the rate uh, inflation-adjusted interest rate is negative three. Now, there is no way that negative interest rates historically have ever been correlated with a non-inflationary, healthy, sustainable economy. So they're raising rates and they need to you know, step on the uh, uh, brake harder, in my view, to get interest rates back into some semblance of normalcy after decades, but particularly after two years of just uh, crazy uh, money printing and interest rate suppression. When we had interest rates 
at five basis points, uh, that is the federal funds rate, um, in uh, er, you know the spring of 2020, when they really went to town with the printing press, the two-year uh, federal note uh, was yielding about 25 basis points, a quarter of a percent. Today, it's 450. Now, that shows you 4.5%. That shows you how far off the deep end they were at the time, because by forcing the money market rate and the federal funds rate to, you know, what, what they call the zero bound uh, uh, or to rock bottom, they brought all short term interest rates down with that maneuver and created, you know, crazy signals. Uh, to uh, financial actors, both in the financial marketplace as well as in uh, you know the main street economy, because if you could borrow money at twenty five basis points back then and invest it in a ten year uh, note or even junk bond that was yielding uh, you know one hundred and fifty basis points on the Treasury note and say 300 or 400 basis points on the junk bond. That's what all the speculators were doing. And they were just making the problem worse. The Fed is finally recognizing that, but it still has a long way to go. Not on a goal of putting people uh, on unemployment insurance, but of getting uh, the financial signaling system back into some kind of sustainable rational um uh, position all right now in your uh first of all i want to mention these pieces i'm sorry i mentioned i should have said this at the very beginning it's part one two and three can i reprint this at the institute david the labor sure. market ain't strong yeah, yeah. sorry yeah. hunter you got a job here buddy that's my <laughs> um this is such a great piece and people should really take a look at it there's so much in there and including you take a couple of important swipes at Donald Trump for his protectionist policy when it comes to China. Now, yeah. so this is a whole part of a conversation starting now. I call it China, China, China. Now, yep. um, remember everybody, this guy was a Reaganite, ain't some liberal. And uh, in fact, it was Obama and Hillary Clinton who came up with the Asia pivot in the first place, wasn't it? Um, but yeah. so we have a very hawkish policy, a Cold War policy, against China right now. And then under Trump, we had this protectionist policy against them. But there's a very important narrative on the right, and there's got to be some truth to it, that when the Americans sent Milton Friedman over there to teach them commies about markets, that, okay, sure, it helped a lot of people not starve to death like they had been under Mao Zedong. But at the same time, all they did really was empower this totalitarian state and make it rich enough to challenge us and take over the world and eventually invade California or at least yeah. Japan. Um, and so um, it was a huge error. We should have never, Bill Clinton should have never given a most favored nation a trade status. And the whole thing was a giant error. And, and so Trump was right to begin to reverse it by putting all these tariffs on so that we can hem China in. Otherwise, they're going to get out of control. What mm -hmm. do you say? Uh, there's a lot to unpack there, but I think you start with the big picture and say, what is the most important lesson we've learned in the last half century? And once you articulate that, apply it to the China situation, and suddenly the scales fall from your eyes. The important lesson is that communism, centralization and bureau bureaucratization of economic life doesn't work it fails it ends in collapse that's what we learned from the soviet union now china has a slightly different uh let's say more um, subtle version of the soviet economy but at the end of the day it is an artificial economy that isn't a capitalist economy that does not have the discipline of sound money and truly competitive markets. But instead, it's one of the great debt-driven bubbles and Ponzi schemes in all of history. 
So if we really believe that sound money is essential in the long run, that you can't print your way to prosperity, you can't borrow your way to prosperity. And by the way, if you go to the mid-1990s when Chinese exports really started to flow big time, they had about a trillion dollars worth of debt on their economy. They now have 50 trillion. Okay, so in less than 25 years, uh, they racked up 50 trillion worth of debt. Well, we, uh, in the first round, when you do that, you can build a lot of highways, you can build a lot of apartment buildings, you can uh, take a, a steel industry that uh, was maybe uh, a few million tons uh, at the time, or 10, 20 million tons, to a billion tons today. But then the, if you don't have uh, markets and you don't have sound money and you don't have discipline and you don't have failure. They don't have failures in China. They bail out everything, even worse than what we do. You end up creating uh, what I call a pyramid economy. <laughs> in other words, you got a lot of capital invested, but uh, much of it is in totally unproductive uh, uh, applications uh, like uh, pyramids. And uh, sooner or later, uh, the whole house of cards comes crashing down. I don't know how long it's going to take in China, but I'm not worried about China, uh, you know, and invading the California coast or taking over the world or becoming a bigger GDP in, than the United States or becoming a military threat. Of course, we spend $850 billion a year on military they spend, uh, you know, around $100 billion. So uh, I don't know what people are talking about. But even if they continue to spend double what they're spending today, sooner or later, that Ponzi scheme is going to collapse. Uh, and, uh, you know, the great threat to the world uh, being alleged today um, is going to end up uh, in the same boat uh, where the Soviet Union, uh, you know, disappeared into the dustbin of history in 1991. And we, but again, because uh, Washington finds it much more amenable uh, to have enemies, because if you have enemies, then there's something for policymakers to do, and there's something for congressmen uh, uh, to do as they travel around the world on their foreign policy junkets and Obviously, there's a tremendous uh, case uh, then for the military-industrial complex and a ever-growing defense budget and all of these think tanks and, uh, you know, I call them parasites that um, plant themselves in the beltway, uh, get funded with money uh, that's buried everywhere in the defense and international security budget. And then they use that money to do studies and to generate propaganda that says we need even more uh, and that China is uh, stealing all of our intellectual property and all the rest of it. So it's uh, kind of what I once uh, one guy once called a self-licking ice cream cone. Uh, and it's a very dangerous thing. Um, so, uh, you know, that's when you lose track of the basics. When you lose track of the fundamental, uh, in this case, that it's a Ponzi scheme that's going to collapse and that we don't have to, uh, you know, uh, get on uh, red alert uh, about a military or foreign policy threat. If you can keep focused on the fundamentals, uh, we would have, I think, a far more rational foreign policy. Mm -hmm. But there's every reason for Washington to either be blind to the fundamentals or to be ignorant of the fundamentals because that services uh, the short run interests of lobbyists and defense contractors and you know all of the uh, think tanks that uh, exist around the, the beltway uh, in favor of what's called a robust foreign policy, but it's not robust it's dangerous. Uh, it's going to bankrupt the country in the long run. And uh, it doesn't make us safer or more secure. 
It simply uh, creates new hotspots of danger in the world, as we're now learning in the Ukraine. Hmm. Hey, y'all, Scott here. Let me tell you about Roberts and Roberts Brokerage, Inc. Who knew? Artificial bank credit expansion leads to price inflation and terribly distorted markets. If you've got any savings left at all, you need to protect them. You need to put some, at least, into precious metals. Well, Roberts and Roberts can set you up with the best deals on silver, gold, platinum, and palladium. And they've been doing this since 1977. Hey, if you just need some sound advice about sound money, they're there for you too. Call Tim Fry and the guys at 800-874-9760. That's 800-874-9760. Or check them out at rrbi.co. That's rrbi.co. You'll be glad you did. Hey, y'all, they've got great deals on weed at thehempspot.com. The Hemp Spot specializes in Delta-8 tetrahydrocannabinol instead of Delta-9, so they can send it straight to you anywhere in America. Recently, a friend moved and didn't have a guy in his new town, but then he heard about thehempspot.com on my show and was saved, figuratively and literally, because if you use the promo code SCOTT, you get 15% off every order and free shipping on any order over $100. Legal jams, bud, gummies, and the rest in your state. TheHempSpot.com. Spell V-T-H-C. You guys, my friend Mike Swanson has written such a great revisionist take on the early history of the post-World War II national security state and military-industrial complex in the Truman, Eisenhower, and Kennedy years. It's called The War State. I have to say, it's the most convincing case I've read that Kennedy had truly decided to end the Cold War before he was killed. In any case, I know you'll love it. The War State by Mike Swanson. All right, now, so a couple more things on China here real quick. What about just the basic point about offshoring, that there's a billion impoverished Chinese people who will put plastic things together for lower wages than Americans, and there always will be. And if we let big business have their way, they'll just ship every bit of manufacturing over there and the American people won't have any jobs. We won't even be able to afford the cheap plastic crap they're importing. Yeah. Well, I, I think, uh, you know, it's not that simple. Offshoring was a big problem. But again, in terms of going to the fundamentals, you have to ask, why did that happen? Did that happen solely because some people in the rice paddies of China uh, got uh, organized by Mr. Deng uh, and put into export factories and uh, sent uh, cheap goods to the United States. No, that wasn't the whole thing. Uh, what happened was we desperately needed to purge the inflation out of the U.S. economy and cost structure beginning in the 1990s that had been generated uh, in the great inflationary waves of the 70s and early 80s, because what that did was it raised the dollar cost of production, labor costs and other uh, you know, infrastructure costs in the United States far, far above where it had been in the 1970s. Now, during the 1970s, when China was still in the midst of uh, you know, the great, the great leap forward and the cultural revolution and all of the uh, insanity of the Maoist era, the, you know, uh, production couldn't uh, uh, transplant itself to China because it was basically uh, chaotic and disorganized. But by the time the 90s came along and they got uh, new leadership, Mr. Deng in particular, who figured out that Mao was wrong, that uh, power, uh, political power for the Communist Party does not come from the barrel of a gun, but comes from the end of a printing press. And once he started, you know, that whole uh, uh, massive uh, debt-driven uh, 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 export and infrastructure-based uh, economy, um, it, uh, it meshed with the exact wrong policies at the Fed after uh, Greenspan started to decide that he wanted to be the toast of the town and forget all about the hard money gold standard that he had advocated for most of his adult life. So 
the essence of it was we should have had a steady decline in the uh, price level, that is deflation of wages and prices and costs from the early 90s forward, so that as China arose, the cost gap in dollar terms between production over there, which has a big cost in terms of supply chain, more inventories, more risk, quality control issues. It's not just a, a labor differential, but if we had been narrowing the cost gap through deflationary policies uh, with the uh, rising uh, Chinese juggernaut, uh, so to speak, uh, the extent of offshoring that actually occurred in the 500 billion that we now import annually from China would have uh, not happened nearly to the extent that it did. So the essence of it is the, the fundamental cause of offshoring was the Federal Reserve, was the idea that 2% inflation or more is a good thing. But when you compound it over decades, the only thing it was doing was widening the uh, dollar cost gap between production in the new export factories of China and production in the bloated, inflate, cost-inflated factories uh, of the United States. And we ended up uh, with the mess that we have today. Well, Trump had the wrong answer. He wanted an even easier Fed policy. He was always hectoring the Fed for raising, even thinking about raising interest rates, and he wanted them even lower when they were already at rock bottom, uh, and instead uh, went the protectionist route uh, and, and essentially you know, put a tax on American consumers for buying the goods that Fed policy had caused to flow into the U.S. economy in the first place. So, you know, we had a lot of things uh, upside down or backwards, however you want to uh, describe it. And this is just one more example of, of that very thing. Um, all right. So how big of a shift was it? Like, I'm trying to picture in my mind's eye how much trade we had with China before Trump and how much that changed due to his tariffs. And I wonder, like, does it count as a real structural change? the days of, you know, like a, yeah. a shift in the era, like from before they were allowed into the WTO to now after this, you know, that kind of thing. Well, there's two uh, things that you're uh, wanting to measure there. One is the short run impact of four years worth or not even that. It was about two and a half years of Trump tariffs. I don't, uh, you know, think I don't have the numbers right on the top of my head that it slowed down in any appreciable sense, uh, the import level from China in the last year, uh, you know, we had something like uh, 500 billion of imports from China and that was above uh, where it was. Even and did before. Biden lift them or Biden left them where they were? Well, right now they're still, uh, uh, still in place. <laughs> you know, uh, Biden is uh, allegedly there having internal debate, the hardcore Keynesians uh, want to have the import tariffs lifted because that would reduce some inflationary pressure in the uh, CPI and that would uh -huh. uh, help them, you know, uh, not to have to, you know, uh, disemploy so many people. Right. Uh, but they're still in place. The, the bigger issue is if you go back to, say, 1990 or 1995, there is a huge increase in the level of imports uh, from China. I would say uh, probably uh, 25 to 30 times bigger imports in 2022 uh, than we had in say 1992. So uh, over that 30 years, uh, the goods supply system in the United States has been turned upside down and essentially uh, transplanted uh, to China and now, you know, Vietnam uh, as a way station. Some of the final assembly uh, got moved uh, to uh, Mexico based on parts that were sourced in China. Hmm. So uh, this whole uh, labor and cost arbitrage at the end of the day uh, was not free trade at work. It was 
basically the distorted impact of free money flowing into an open global economy mm -hmm. and causing all of these uh, displacements to occur. In other words, an American manufacturer facing 20 years worth of declining costs domestically would not have been nearly at the disadvantage that they were, let's say, in 2018 when Trump uh, laid on all these tariffs um, because uh, the dollar cost gap uh, would have narrowed substantially rather than expanded uh, the way it did. Mm -hmm. And so, but uh, when you say like, well, they had to kind of reorganize a few supply chains to Vietnam and and if you compare it to the 90s, uh, it's not much. You're saying it's really, despite all the rhetoric and and whatever small uh, or whatever bad effects, they were small, that it didn't, that Trump's tariffs, in now Biden's tariffs, they didn't really make much of a change compared to... No, 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 that's true. But also where it did on the margin, it simply moved uh, production from one, uh, the low-cost factories of China to uh, lower cost factories in Vietnam or even assembly, sub-assembly, final assembly operations in uh, Mexico. And then you had to try to figure out the, the origin of those products that came from Mexico, which were really, let's say, kits that were made in China, but mm -hmm. weren't assembled, they were sent to Mexico. And to now they cost an extra $14. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. So uh, the whole thing was a huge mistake. It was uh, attempting uh, to use protection protectionism against the symptom when you really needed to go to the monetary cause. All of these bad things that we deal with uh, in the economics uh, inflation, low growth, uh, uh, offshoring of our industrial base, sooner or later, all of them had a monetary uh, route, a, uh, you know, bad money route. And, uh, you know, but the interesting thing, and I've actually been writing about this uh, today, I'm <laughs> doing it, is the Republicans somehow don't get it that this is the ideal time to be attacking the Fed hammer and tong for all of the uh, mess that we have in the economy today, the 8% inflation, the soaring uh, you know, food and energy and other uh, costs that households are trying to cope with. Uh, now would be the time to be attacking the Fed and uh, making that a, uh, you know, very salient policy issue when, in fact, they didn't do that. Uh, you know, maybe Rand Paul did, and good for him, but uh, there wasn't much. Uh, in fact, half of the establishment Republicans who've been in the town there for uh, decades uh, because they're career politicians, you know, like McConnell, you think the Fed is a wonderful institution and they don't want to rock the boat because they, you know, they want uh, Wall Street to keep going up because they'll get more uh, campaign contributions. So the Republican Party, which should be the party of sound money and was before Nixon's, uh, you know, perfidy in uh, August 1971, uh, have you know, just vacated the field, have abdicated. Their number one job is to promote fiscal rectitude and sound money. And frankly, in the last couple of years, they've been doing very little of either. Yeah. All right. A couple more uh, things I want to ask you about here and getting somewhat short on time. Uh, yeah. You're familiar with George Friedman, the uh, chairman of Stratfor, which yeah. people say is sort of a shadow CIA, private CIA, and he's an analyst, and I guess they do some dirty tricks, too. I don't know. Uh, but anyway, he gave a famous interview that I'm sure you're aware of to Commerzant, where uh, this uh, Russian media outlet, where he uh, the famous quote was that what happened in the Maidan in February 2014 was the most blatant coup in world history. Yeah. Uh, clearly yeah. referring to the U.S. Yeah. government doing the coup. Yeah. Well, anyway, so I was rereading that whole interview the other day. 
yesterday. And one of the things he's explaining very patiently to his interviewer is that America's policy is that when anyone gets stronger, we hit them. And that's why we have to hit Iran, and that's why we have to hit Iraq, and that's why we hit Russia. Russia's getting a little bit more powerful. I don't know what's causing all these upward pressures on uh, energy prices, but it's uh, helping fill Putin's coffers. And so we have to hit him by making sure to cut him off if we can from his access to the Black Sea uh, by way of Crimea. And if the Chinese are getting a little too big, and that's because the University of Chicago guys taught them like sort of half-assed capitalist economics and they're doing better than they were before, well, we got to hit them. And keep them off balance, and we do this and that, and it doesn't matter who's the president, if it's Bush or if it's Obama or if it's Trump. This is American strategy. And yet, the thing is, as we were talking about before, part of America's strategy was at least in effect, and I think, David, that they said that they were doing this on purpose. We want to help make China rich and teach these poor, starving people about capitalism so that they're not starving anymore and that the more they learn about property and free markets and trade, the more they'll learn about self-government and republicanism and hopefully a brave new future and all of these kinds of things. Well, that doesn't sound like constantly hitting them to keep them from getting more powerful. That sounds like quite deliberately, at least— knowingly allowing them to be more powerful for all the good that comes with it. And it seems to me, as a libertarian and not a statist, that that's what we want, not for the nation states of the world, but for the people of the world to all be very wealthy and healthy and happy and live long lives. And that it's stupid and crazy to always hit the Ayatollah and always hit, especially Vladimir Putin, sitting on 7,000 H-bombs. But so... You know, I don't know, man. You're a lot more worldly and wise to me, and I'm just kind of a naive kid in my 40s here. So I wonder if maybe I don't understand and that really uh, maybe George Friedman is right, that if we don't hit all these potentially rising powers from one side or the other all the time to keep them off balance, to keep them destabilized, to keep them weak, then something bad might happen. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I think you're, uh, you're spot on in your analysis. I agree with it. Um, in fact, you know, that's the whole distortion that's underway right now. We've decided, uh, we, I mean, Washington has decided to weaponize commerce. We put these sanctions on everybody and their grandmother if they look cross-eyed at uh, something that Washington is doing, uh, you know, from Venezuela, obviously massively against Russia, all kinds of uh, sanctions being applied to China and then everybody else that, uh, you know, didn't, uh, on a secondary basis, didn't observe uh, our writ uh, about North Korea or the Iranians. I mean, the whole thing is a huge mess, and it's based on the proposition that the state has the right to um you know, expropriate a sense, in a sense, the value of anybody engaged in world commerce if they're engaged in commerce with the wrong country at any moment in time, uh, with uh, a country that is, uh, you know, getting uh, identified or tagged as uh, uh, an enemy or as a rival or something. And that's the real problem today, uh, you know. We went from the forever wars, hot wars, to even worse, forever sanctions wars, which are now beginning to break down the whole world trading system and payment system. Why would anybody really trust the dollar anymore when, like the Russians, who had 500 billion of reserves parked in different central banks around you know, Europe and uh, United States, Japan, all of a sudden they were, we stole stole it. We seized a half a trillion dollars worth of Russian central bank uh, uh, deposits because they had, as it turns out, stupidly trusted the international payment system based on uh, the dollar that uh, had, you know, served the world uh, reasonably well for decades and decades as they, you know, came out from under the autarkic uh, Soviet regime after 1991. So I agree that we shouldn't be hitting everybody, 
that we should be uh, basically promoting uh, commerce and promoting prosperity everywhere in the world. Um, but you know, when when you have that kind of policy predicate, how do you justify an eight hundred fifty billion dollar defense budget? How do you justify eleven or twelve carrier battle groups or whatever we have today? How do you justify all of these little fights we're getting into about irrelevant territory in the Donbass or whether Taiwan is part of China or not part of China, even though historically China has claimed it for three or 400 years. Uh, none of that would be happening uh, if we had uh, the predicate that uh, promoting peaceful commerce is the route to security and prosperity uh, and peace, which uh, surely it is. All right. Now, so everybody says it's the end of dollar hegemony, that all this kicking the Russians out of Europe to hit them is, uh-oh, pushing them way too far. And now they're adding more countries to the BRICS, and they're going to move to a new uh, commodity-based basket of currencies or some kind of thing. And that that's when hell will finally be paid by the Americans. And all of that inflation they've been exporting all this time will come home, and it'll break the dollar, and we'll all have a civil war and die and um, yeah. it's all because, you know, the comeuppance has finally come due as soon as, which is happening right now, that the national governments of the world are giving up and using U.S. dollars for their major transactions between each other, et cetera, et cetera, like that. What's the truth of that and what does it really mean? Well, I think it's probably a little more complicated, but there's some truth to it. In the short run, it's actually working the other way. The world was so dependent on the dollar which really wasn't the dollar per se, but it was the fungibility of the dollar, um, you know, in terms of uh, uh, global pay payments uh, and trade. Uh, and as a result of that, now it, as the Fed is attempting to um, uh, rein in uh, its uh, monetary policy, it's driving up uh, interest rates uh, far more rapidly in the dollar-denominated securities than you know they're doing in Japan, where the ten-year is still at twenty-five basis points, or even in Europe, where they're way behind us. So right now, there's a dollar shortage in the world, and because people have to pay back debts at much higher interest rates. In dollars, you know, there's a huge amount. The Chinese developers, for instance, of all these empty apartments buildings that they have, literally millions and millions of empty units, were funded on the dollar, uh, offshore dollar junk bond market. And now, the, you know, all of these uh, debts are coming due, and there's a scramble for dollars to pay them back. And that's part of what's happening in the short run, why the dollar is as strong as it is. But if you look at sound money as an overarching principle, then you realize that the dollar may be strong against the yen, which, you know, it's up 40 percent, or it may be strengthening even against a lot uh, substantially against uh, the uh, Chinese uh, RMB. Uh, and certainly it's gone way the heck up uh, against the euro. It's now at parity. Um, uh, so it may be strong, but it's because it's the cleanest dirty shirt in the laundry mm -hmm. of bad money that's being created by central banks all around the world. And in the long run, the problem for the dollar is if you know, uh, uh, the scenario that you describe unfolds and it's used less and less uh, to finance uh, global trade, use less and less as a store of value or uh, reserve uh, asset, uh, it will simply mean that interest rates are far more sensitive to supply and demand in the United States. And if we keep these massive budget deficits going and we're you know, looking at two trillion again this year, it's going to be much harder to finance. Uh, interest rates are going to be higher. Higher interest rates not only will throttle Washington, but they'll make it much more difficult 
for domestic investment to occur and therefore our economy to grow. You hear that, everybody? It's going to throttle Washington. Man, that's great news. I'm so happy to hear one positive word out of your mouth in this hour, David. Okay. Now, I right. know that's not what you meant, but I was just trying to think of a good closer here. Yeah. I'm sorry. We're out of time. And uh, man, I've learned so much. I love talking with you. And I love reading uh, David Stockman's Contra Corner. I get your emails and I follow the links every single day over there. That's David Stockman's Contra Corner.com. Thank you again, sir. Appreciate you. Okay. Great to be with you, Scott. The Scott Horton Show, Anti-War Radio, can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, APSRadio.com, Antiwar.com, ScottHorton.org, and LibertarianInstitute.org.